This morning is from Matthew 7, 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So how many of you all uh, grew up around the church and have heard the children's song based upon this passage? It goes, the wise man built his house upon the rock. How many? Okay, so I didn't grow up in the church, never heard of it, right? So the other day I'm preparing to preach this. My wife said, so what um, are you preaching? And I said, well, this passage, and so hold on. So she... um, said to me, well, remember the song. And I'm like, I have no idea what song you're talking about. So she turned on VeggieTales. You guys know what VeggieTales is? It's vegetables who walk around and talk. Truth. So this is how they, this is what it sounds like. This is a tomato and a cucumber, by the way. This is one of my favorite parts. I'm just trying to buy time, folks. Right here. Yep, I knew it would, he said. I love that. So the, the, the house stood firm. Yep, I knew it would. Um, so when it gets to the man who built his house upon the sand, what happens to the house? It falls down. So when you sing it with a children's um, group of children, ch- children, I guess is what you'd call them, they fall down and they all laugh hysterically, right? And it's a super fun song. Cucumbers sing it, tomatoes sing it. But when I was studying this passage, I thought to myself, Bob the tomato and Larry the cucumber are leading us astray. For this reason, they're saying true things, but they're getting kids to laugh at the fall, right, of the house coming crumbling down. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in a life situation where the house comes crashing down, but it's not laughable. And what's really interesting about this passage is, in fact, what Jesus is talking about with clear focus is the final judgment. That those who put his words into practice prove that they have faith. Those who don't prove that they don't. And in the end, the house comes crashing down on those who didn't, right? That doesn't feel like a smiling cucumber and a smiling tomato, right? Jesus is teaching is extraordinarily serious in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he teaches when he comes to the end of what many people say is the greatest sermon ever delivered. And his point is in verse 24, where he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man, the wise one who builds their house on the rock. So let's pray as we get into this passage. Father, we come before you this morning and ask you um, to be with us, that we would be wise ones, not foolish ones. 
that we would hear your words as powerful words that are meant to be put into practice for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Jesus teaches in such a way, Jesus teaches in such a way throughout the Sermon on the Mount and all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the Bible for that matter, and he's always focusing back on the heart. He's always refusing to allow us to go, I'm happy with what's going on out here, and he goes, yeah, but you. So in the judgment section, he'll say, why is it that you judge another person? You see the speck that's in their eye when you have a redwood forest in your own. So he's always driving back to the heart, which ultimately raises this question, if we're taking Jesus seriously and what he says seriously, where we have to ask ourselves this question, am I really a Christian? Are any of you familiar um, with how the phrase Christian developed? In the Bible, you guys remember it all, in the book of Acts, there's this scene in Acts chapter 11 where it says it was at Antioch, which most historians would say was the first church planted amongst the Gentiles, non-Jews. It was at Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. But they were called Christians, the text says, by those outside the church. So how did that happen? Well, during that time, there were people that would watch individuals who followed an individual. So, for instance, King Herod. There was these people who followed King Herod. And the way King Herod dressed, they would dress like. The tassels he wore, they would wear. The way he walked, they tried to walk. The way he talked, they wanted to talk. The way he thought, they wanted to think. So they were labeled Herodians because the people looked at them and said, they're like little Herods. Well, if that was the trend, now when they look at those people from the way that are following Jesus, they went, oh, they're like little Christs. The way Jesus talked, they try to talk. The way Jesus walked, they're trying to walk. The way he thought, they're thinking. They're trying to put into practice, now even when he's gone, the things he told them to put into practice. These were people who truly remembered this statement of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is the wise one. But the one who merely hears them and doesn't do them is the foolish one. What Jesus does at this last section on the Sermon on the Mount is he gets to a certain point where he really wants to reveal something true about an audience that's sitting under and listening to the words of Jesus. The people that are sitting in front of him at that moment, he's trying to reveal something to them. Then he's exhorting them to practice something. Then he's saying, heed something. So here, we'll go at it. Starting off, He's trying to reveal something about a room that sits under his words, which was true of those who were sitting at his feet during the Sermon on the Mount, and it's true of us. And here's what he's trying to reveal. He's seeking to reveal that there are two groups of people that sit here hearing the word of God. And he's separating them and looks at one favorably in a positive light, looks at another one in a negative light. 
So it's not as clean and clear as saying there's just a line down the room. The reality is when he's speaking to that group and when now we're listening to Jesus' word, it's salt and pepper mixed together, right? Like there's certain of you in here that are wise ones and certain that are foolish ones, but the wise ones are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. The foolish ones are those who only hear the word of God and do nothing with it. How many of you all, I know there's a decent amount of people in here who are young. So how many of you have heard of the 1992 movie, White Men Can't Jump? Okay, preach. White Men Can't Jump. It's a movie with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson uh, that are in it. If you've not heard of it, you should at least look up this segment in the movie. But there's basically... There are two street basketball players, and I listened to the message last week when Sean was talking about being a hooper. Just so you know, preachers lie, okay? So he tried to say he's a hooper. They lie, okay? Just so you know that. I'm telling, being really honest. So this movie's about basketball, street basketball, and essentially they hustle folks on these street courts because Woody Harrelson walks in as the white guy, looks super goofy, wears awkward socks, awkward shorts, hat behind, and he'll walk on while... The minute they're like, who's going to take him? Nobody's going to take him. Nobody's going to take him. And finally, Woody, I mean, Wesley Snipes will be like, I'll take him. And then they'll get into a betting war. Like, okay, we're going to bet upon this game. Well, the people are way more likely to put in a bunch of money. They put in a bunch of money. And then they hustle him because Woody Harrelson's really good. And with Wesley Snipes, are really good. So one day, they're talking about how they're going to hustle. They're in a car. They're driving. And Woody Harrelson puts in a tape. It's 1992, folks, okay? No iPods, no iPhones. Pops in a tape. And this music comes on, and it's Jimi Hendrix. The music, see, somebody knows. The music comes on. Wesley Snipes says to Woody Harrelson, what are you doing? He said, I'm listening to Jimmy." No, 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 why are you playing Jimmy? Because I like to listen to him. Wesley Snipes says, what? You like to listen to him? That's the problem. And then Woody Harrelson says back to him, what am I supposed to do, eat it? You're supposed to listen to him. He was, no, this is the problem with y'all. You listen to Jimmy, but you can't hear Jimmy. Right? And they get into this huge war. That's the problem with white people. You can only listen to it, but you can't hear it. Wesley Snipes, at a moment, is making a distinction that you can play the tape, but it doesn't mean you hear it. In a very similar way, Jesus is going, you can sit here, hear these words of mine, hear them, but not hear them. So he's saying there are two groups in this room, the ones who hear my words and the ones who hear my words. There are those who hear it and walk away and do nothing with it, and those who are, there are those who hear it and do it. There are those who hear it and practice it. So here's what Jesus is saying to all of us as he was to those who sat at his feet for the Sermon on the Mount. Following Jesus doesn't mean going to something a couple to a few times a week. It doesn't mean attendance. It doesn't mean checking a box. Following Jesus, this is crazy, I know, means following Jesus. There's a modern, uh, more modern worship song that says, Where you go, I'll go. What you say, I'll say. What you pray, I'll I'll pray. That's an idea of what Jesus is saying. Is these words I've just said to you 
the wise person hears them and views them as the very words of life, the very words of God, and puts them into practice. Stop for a minute and think about this. When Jesus, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew chapter 5, the whole sermon starts saying, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opens his mouth saying, Now, I'm not certain you have, but stop now if you haven't and think about this. This Jesus, who it says, seeing the crowds, they all come to him. He opens his mouth, he sits down and opens his mouth. This Jesus, who sits down to open his mouth, is the same Jesus who, upon opening his mouth, stilled a raging sea. This Jesus who sits down, opens his mouth, is the same Jesus who Colossians 1 says, spoke the universe into existence. Everything we can see and everything we can't see, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. This Jesus who sits down and opens his mouth is the same Jesus who Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 says that in his word all things hold together. So this isn't trite. If if that passage is true, that means right now our bodies are being held together by the word of his power. I read my children a storybook that in creation when he speaks forth words, it says big words. Strong words, powerful words. That's the Jesus who opens his mouth and speaks the very same big words, the very same powerful words, the very same strong words. Why? Because they're the very words of God. Because they're the very words of God. So when he comes to this point and says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, don't view these as any other words. You read the Sermon on the Mount and it's intensely about the here and now. It's intensely about real life. But it's spoken from God whose words are life. And they're spoken by God. Now, if we walk out and away from that and go, oh, that was nice, like a new hit song, and we just go on our merry way and don't do anything with it, the scriptures say we're foolish. But if we heed them because they are the words of God, and he separates this so you know, this is where it's going. He separates it to a point of going, those who put it into practice are those who have true faith. Those who don't, don't have true faith. There's a quote that's associated, and this is clearly what Jesus is trying to do. Some associated with G.K. Chesterton, some C.S. Lewis, some Billy Sunday. So choose who your favorite is and say it was them. Here's the statement. Just going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. This is what Jesus is trying to do. Don't say because you're sitting here hearing the words of me that you're a follower of me. A follower of me means doing it, right? So if you step back right now, you have to go, if you're gonna heed the words of Jesus, even a little bit, what have I done with his words? What am I doing with his words? What am I gonna do with his words? Just before this, in this section, he says to the same group of people, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. So this Jesus we've just established is the one who stills sees, who created the universe, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is Lord, he's saying. There's a passage in Philippians chapter 2 that says, speaking of Jesus, the Jesus being in the very form of God, didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Therefore, God highly exalts him, seats him in his right hand, gives him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. What would they confess? His name. This is what's so interesting about this passage, and we don't have time to do a bunch of detail on it, but the language is set up so much that the name that they're bowing at the feet of him is not Jesus. It's the name they confess, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at the feet of Jesus, and they will confess Jesus is, here's the name, Lord. The word Lord means king, means the one we submit to, the one we follow, But many of us don't like the idea of kingship and don't like the idea of lordship because we immediately associate it with evil. But if we associate it with a loving, good God who at infinite cost to himself humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for our life, and he is offering us words of life, this is a very, very, very different scene. But Jesus is absolutely precise with precision saying to us, what you do with my words makes all the difference in the world, exposes all the realities of our hearts, your heart, and will determine your security or your insecurity. This is why his brother, James, picks up this very idea. Like, I remember my brother saying this. So he says in his letter, but be doers of the word, not hearers only. If you're a hearer only, you deceive yourself. For if everyone is just a hearer of the word and not a doer, they're like a person who looks intently at their natural face in the mirror and he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. Here's what he's saying. You're denying your very humanity. You're forgetting who you even are. You're going... That's who I am. And then you're walking away. And when you don't do it, you forget. It's absolutely catastrophic for you. Therefore, for your family. Therefore, for your friends. Therefore, for your future. Therefore, for your relationship with God, which is ultimately what you're made for. Therefore, for society. Jesus in the book of John at the very end meets with his disciples, walks in. They're all ready to be served and get fed. And Jesus walks in, grabs a wash basin, takes off his outer garment, takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, bows down to wash the feet of Peter. Peter says, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. That's the role of a measly servant. And Jesus says, Peter, if you do not allow me to wash your feet, you can have no part of me. So Peter then says, wash all of me, Lord. Jesus finishes washing his disciples' feet and he looks at him and he goes, let me tell you something. No servant is greater than their master. If I am your master, Lord, do as I do. Here's exactly how he says it. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, happy are you if you do them. Happy are you if you do them. 
This isn't about just coming in and getting butterflies in your stomach and getting goosebumps on your arm and going, I think God spoke to me. Then you need to turn to your friend and say, I think God spoke to you. And we need to train ourselves as friends to say, then do it. If God said it, do it. That's what Jesus is making the separator. Those who do what he says because they believe his Lord and don't. Now, let me say this really quickly because this may be a little bit confusing. Because if you come to redemption very long in the music that we sing, in the communion that we take, participating in Jesus' body and blood every single week, you are going to hear this gospel that we are not made right with God on the basis of anything that we do, but based upon faith in Christ alone. Okay, if you ever hear a message other than that at any redemption, tell me and the person's going to be fired, okay? They may not be fired, but they'll be corrected first. If you hear a message like that anywhere else, leave. Galatians says it's an anathema. It's not of God. That's the truth. The only one who can fix our predicament is God in his grace. We are justified by faith. But the faith that justifies us, hear this attentively, is a living faith. It's a living faith. We actually believe he's Lord, therefore we do what he says. We really believe that the words he has are the words of life. We really believe it is all about him. That everything in our lives, all of our lives, are all for Jesus. That's why some of you are wearing that shirt. So the way John Stott said it, if you have a pen right now, write down this because this is the point of everything Jesus is saying. John Stott says, Jesus is the curriculum, he's the teacher, and he's the classroom. Jesus. Now, this is not some distant God that we don't know what he's like. He came to us in human form. We can read about him in the Gospels. We can have that colored and have amazing power, potency, and flesh put to it in the New Testament. But Jesus is the point. He's the curriculum, he's the teacher, and he's the classroom. So now here's what Jesus is saying. He separates these two, he says, do it. And he's exhorting us, practice wisdom, practice wisdom, practice wisdom. The wise one practices wisdom by putting what I've said into practice. There are wise people and there are foolish people. Wise people practice wisdom. Wisdom is putting into practice the words I'm stating to you or have stated to you. So if you're a parent, you know a bit what this feels like, but with sin. Jesus didn't have sin. So there's these moments when you have kids where you'll say something and you feel a little like Jackie Chan, you know the Jackie Chan movies where he's with Chris Rock. Chris Rock has this moment where he says, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? That's what you feel like as a parent all the time. Like, okay, I just said this, and I said it, and I said it. Like, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And then almost 100% of the time, your kids will say, yes, we heard you. And then you get even more frustrated, and your eyes get big, and you're kind of perplexed. (laughs) Then, what do you say? Do it! Like, put on your stinking shoes. We're not talking about the world here. I'm not saying develop a cure for cancer. Like, put on your shoes. Jesus is saying, listen, what I've said to you, practice. Wisdom, what is wisdom ultimately? The ancients said there was three types of knowledge. There was like book knowledge, which is good. They never said any of these were bad. Book knowledge, which is good. 
Then there was what we'd call now practical knowledge, meaning it works. Then there was wisdom. Like you know because you know. You know because you've tried it and you went, yeah, that's touching reality. You know because you got it from wisdom. So in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, there's a statement that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, why is the fear of God, the reverence of God, the acknowledgement that he is Lord, the beginning of wisdom? Because God is wisdom. That's why. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why is it that in the book of James, when it says life is brutally challenging, it's really, really hard, and you're going to have moments more often than not, where you face life and you are massively confused. When you need wisdom, James says in James 1, ask, who are you asking? God, and he will grant to you wisdom. So here's the bottom line to make it really, really easy. What Jesus is saying all the time is that if God's wisdom, right, get as close to God as you possibly can. Then we have to ask, well, what are the barriers ultimately to wisdom? Because we want wisdom. Wisdom is the stuff of real life that gives us the sense of what we're supposed to do in any given moment, even when it's not black and white moral, but just a sense is that God will lead us along. Sometimes through the fire, as one song says, sometimes through the flood, sometimes in good times or in bad, through fire and flood, but always through the blood. What does that mean? Always through the channel that brings you into union with him. Always by going, what are you saying, Lord? Like, get close to God and practice with wisdom. And then you get wisdom by being with him, sitting with him, understanding the barriers of wisdom, hearing him and beginning to step it into practice. Not stride it into practice, not marathon it into practice, but just go, Lord, this is the simple word. I'm going to step. I'm going to step. I'm going to step. But what I know is I'm going to follow you. So briefly, here's what I want you to hear. What are the barriers to wisdom? What are the barriers to wisdom? Because life is really, really hard. Here's the first one that's a barrier. Vision. And here's what I mean by vision. Life is really cloudy. Right? And this is why many times we'll read Jesus and it sounds so undoable. Like, really? Turn the other cheek? I'd blast him in the face, right? And you go, well, you know, what is it really? Life's cloudy and it's really, really difficult. It's really, really challenging. We struggle with vision. So in the end, here's one thing I'll say to you that you have to do. In a world that's feeding you every other message, you have to be in environments personally and communally with other people where you're hearing the words of life that come from the Bible to give you clear vision, to make you understand there are blue skies behind the clouds that God upholds. Here's the next thing that's a hindrance is desire. Be honest with God about your desire. If you don't want it right now, say, God, I don't want it. Help me want it. Right? The man that came to Jesus. Do you believe? He said, I don't know. I don't know if I believe. And then the man says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. This moment, here's what it is. The, the common words of today are authenticity and vulnerability. You read Brene Brown, like vulnerability, and then you do it and you have a vulnerability hangover. Be vulnerable first with the Lord. Be vulnerable. Be honest. He wants you to be. 
Be vulnerable before him and honest. Here's the next thing that stands in the way. Fear. This fear of the sense of if I do this, is he really good and is he really real? Is he really good and is he really real? Here's the only answer to that. What the psalmist says is taste and see that God is good. How do you do that? Put yourself in paths and pathways where you can bump into God. Get around the people that you know walk with him, that love him, that begin in your mind to exude him. Sit with him in his word. Pray, God, reveal yourself to me in truth. Get around him. The only antidote to fear of life is tasting and seeing the goodness of God. The only answer to the question of is he good and is he real is to ask, God, make yourself palatable, make yourself tangible. Here's another huge barrier. What you know, this is all I've ever done, your habits. So I'm going to say this really quickly. I wish I could go on longer, but you have unconscious learned behaviors, behaviors you do that you don't even know that you do. Okay, that's what the Bible calls the flesh. You have to reorient your habits. And when you begin to reorient your habit, it doesn't feel fun, but you're going, God, I'm just trying to do what you want me to do. So ask for wisdom, sit with wisdom, practice wisdom. Here's the last thing we're going to end with. Heed the consequences of your doing or not doing. When he says when the floods come and the storms come, that's going to come in your life. And the question is, do you really have a foundation or do you trust the foundation that you've built your life upon? Because Jesus himself, whether or not you acknowledge him as Lord right now or not, says if you are building upon anything other than Christ in his truth, it's sinking sand. That's true in this life. But here's the passages, what the passage clearly has in mind is the final judgment. Those who stand in the final judgment are those who've built themselves on the rock of Jesus Christ and Christ alone alone. And this isn't a Jesus out there that I can't figure out. This Jesus who's in front of us teaching the Sermon on the Mount saying, do this, do this, and do this. This same Jesus, hear this with crystal clarity. This same Jesus that one of your reasons that you are hindered from him is that you fear, I can't do that. So you begin to walk into it and then you fall and you go, oh my God, I've failed. Here's the amazing part about God is that God promises us He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And if we forsake him, he forgives us. Now, let me tell you this. If you sit in this room and you don't believe in God, I promise you, if you begin to believe in God, you want a God like that. Here's why. You know yourself. You know that all the gods and all the spiritual teachings that are out there right now you can't live up to because you can't even live up to what you want for your own life. So you better have a God who forgives and a God who can forgive, a God who's acted in such extravagant fashion on your behalf that when you fall, you can go, he's right here with me. He forgives me based on what he's done, not based on what I have to do, but based upon what I've done, and then empowers me to go out and say, Put these things into practice. The put these things into practice never stops, but as you do it, it builds your dependence, and you go, oh, Jesus, what you said in John 15, that you're the vine, and I'm the branches, and if I remain in you and you in me, then and only then will I bear much fruit, and that apart from you, I can do 
nothing. Contemporary version, jack squats, right? Nothing can I do apart from you. Your pursuit of obedience will build your dependence because you'll understand your own insufficiency. Redemption Peoria, we serve a faithful God who's speaking to us words of life, who's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And you will have the abundant life as you truthfully, truthfully follow him and believe in his lordship. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. You are the one sure rock. God, for many of us that sit in this room, um, you don't feel that real. So God, I pray now that you would make Christ concrete for us. I pray right now that Redemption Church would not be a place that's known because of anything other than a people who are really seeking to put your word into practice and who love you truthfully only because you first loved us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.